51.
Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Holy Spirit. Good morning. It is indeed a privilege again to be gathered together. We invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke 15. If you would have read one chapter every day starting January 1 in the New Testament, you would be this morning at Luke 15. And that's how we ended up here. This chapter contains the loving father or the prodigal son or however you want to entitle the parable. It is said it is the most, it is the most well known of all of Jesus' parables. And uh, I don't have any particular reason for choosing it this morning other than it was where we were. And it's interesting because this parable, the lessons that are out of it seem to be endless. And they're just, as, every one of them is just as powerful as the next one. And so we're going to read this chapter this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I want to give time to Brother Rod. Then all the tax collectors, I'm reading out of the New King James, by the way. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And I'm going to tell you this morning, those are beautiful, beautiful words. I'm not Jew. I have no right to the kingdom other than Jesus has called me, and he is willing to feed me. So we rejoice in him. So he spoke this parable of them. And I'm going to tell you that everything else that's in this chapter, Jesus is answering this attitude that was already in the scribes and Pharisees. And they thought they were a notch above not only the Gentiles, but also many of the other Jewish people. And Jesus is going to tell them repeatedly that we all need repentance. We all need to come to the foot of the cross. There are no exceptions. And that's what this chapter is about. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. You're going to notice how many times that rejoicing and joy is, is here in this chapter, and usually it's joy in heaven. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them in his livelihood. It's interesting that the father was willing to do this to give him, apparently in liquid assets, he was willing to give this to him uh, before the father died. Normally, a child wouldn't get this until the father passes away. 
But this is showing the kindness and the gentleness of the God that we serve and the love that he has. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, you want to talk about the bottom of the barrel. You know what would be beautiful today? It would be if there would be a Pharisee that would repent. What would be beautiful today if there would be someone who sunk clear to the bottom, a great sinner, and they come to their senses. That's the reason we want the Holy Spirit here, isn't it? That's his work, to touch our lives. But when he came to himself, oh, hallelujah. You know what we need this morning? We need people to come to themselves when they look at what God has given them and they've wasted. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. And he arose and went, came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. There's lessons there in every one of those. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. I'll tell you something. There is nothing more beautiful in this life. There's a lot of things that are absolutely awesome and wonderful, and they are blessings from God. But there is nothing more beautiful than a soul that bends the knee and the heart and the mind. And so I come to you, O oh Lord, make me one of yours. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what those things mean. And he said to him, your brother has come because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you gave, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. This older son didn't even tell the truth. He thought he was righteous, said, I've never done anything wrong. You know what's interesting? He probably was the good son, so to speak. But he didn't repent. I don't know whether there's someone here this morning that has been good. It's good. 
I don't know if there's someone here this morning that has just done everything imaginable. They've lived right in the culture that we're in, and they've just committed sin galore. They both need the same thing, and so do I. I need to repent and come to the Lord. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, is alive again, was lost, and is found. Our prayer of today is someone will come to themselves by the Spirit of God. And someone who is dead and headed to hell will become alive and head for the celestial city. That's what it's all about. What do you have this morning for prayer requests? Cephas, I'm going to call on you to pray. Okay, yes. Okay. Okay, Kurt's dad's in the hospital having some health issues. Let's pray for him. Anyone else? Well, Pray for Brad and Crystal as they are separated for a couple of weeks and the, the work they're doing in Honduras. Yes. Okay. Okay, a Gingrich family in Indiana had a house fire and they lost three children yesterday. Anyone else? You know, we are called to call for, to pray for the peace of the nation that we live in. Let's don't forget that. We know things are disappointing right now, but we are to be the people that holds them up before the Lord. They're not holding themselves up. They reject the Lord. So let's fulfill our role. Anyone else? Let's go to prayer.
think sometimes we don't realize, at least I don't, how the Holy Spirit is working all the time. I knew this was my weekend to speak, and I was driving down the road on Route 30 up by Upper Sandusky, and uh, I had been studying, I had a lot of thoughts, I, the Lord had been feeding me, but I had nothing to share. And I was pretty frustrated, really. And I was praying that the Lord would give me whatever the Holy Spirit would have me to do. And the phone rang. It was Brother Rod. He said, we're going to be seeing family Saturday, and we're going to be at Cornerstone Sunday morning. I said, hallelujah. You called the right guy. The Holy Spirit is still at work. And so Rod and Laura are with us today, and we trust you'll give them full attention. morning. And Phil didn't share that all with me at the time. Probably good and make the weight of the message even heavier this morning. And it's not really a, a heavy message in terms of content exactly, but it's maybe even a departure from some of the messages that I've given in the past. And yet I think that it's a, a message that the church needs to hear from young into old. And I want to say in between, but the irony is I think this message needs to reach the young and the old the most. And that's not to discredit all of those in between. And the reason that I say that is I think the susceptibility to lack of confidence or assurance in our salvation falls heavy on the youth. The youth, a lot of time, because they've maybe known God or known or walked in the faith for yet a short time, and they've not seen Christ in as a glorious of light as needs to be seen. Perhaps they have incorrect theology. Maybe they have improper attitude towards God. And so as they wrestle with this newness of being a Christian, truly being assured and confident of their salvation often can be a hindrance in their walk as youth. And I've also seen where those that are nearly departing this world and this life also lack assurance. And they lack assurance sometimes in a different way. They don't lack assurance relating to them to God as much as they do to themselves, also in proper theology. And so today, I want to deal with the subject of assurance, but maybe not in the way that you would think I would deal with it, because when we deal with assurance of salvation, most of you would think, well, this is a, this is a complicated and this is a, a deep theological conundrum. It's plagued the church for years, and I would agree. It has in many ways. And yet, you don't have to postulate yourself as a, as a high teacher in theology to understand that you probably have wrestled or know someone that has wrestled with these things. Some of you are very black and white in terms of your introduction into truths of the scripture. And I praise God for people like you. The church needs people that you hear truth and you believe it and you receive it. And it's engrafted and it stays there. The roots are deep. And then you wonder why other people seem to waver 
or hesitate or question or doubt. You don't understand people like that. And so while this message may not be exactly for you, it's for you in a way that you can be sympathetic and that you can recognize that there are people that do doubt and recognize that you can be an instrument in their life, minister to their needs. The thing about the assurance of salvation in its importance is a funny thing because I think the litmus test of any Christian falls on assurance of salvation. We recognize as we see scripture's warnings, we see on both sides. Those familiar with the gospels recognize in Matthew 7. Many that said, Lord, Lord, Jesus responds and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So it's quite possible to be very assured of something that is quite indeed false. So that is a truth that's held out. And then we have in places like Hebrews and other uh, books of the Bible that present warning passages of falling away and, and holding confidence to the full assurance of the faith unto the end. So it almost appeals to the reader as if you don't have confidence and assurance of your faith complete into the end. In the same way that you received it, you're in danger of not being saved either. So there's, there's kind of this, this tension in Scripture, and we recognize the tension has been in the church too. There's been periods of time, and many of you that have come out of a subset of various areas in Christianity recognize that there has been a seen as a perceived need to remain humble about your assurance. Is lacking confidence is almost seen as a a grace or a a good thing. It's a it's a work of piety to to perceive in a humble fashion, I'm not really sure it's in God's hands. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've heard it prayed. Maybe you've heard that if it's your will that you would grant us a home in heaven. Maybe you've prayed that. And yet, I want this morning to show you in Scripture that I think the importance of assurance of salvation is necessity, not only of the health of the body, but of your own body. And I would say... And, and I'm going to make a lot of statements that we're probably not going to be able to just go and substantiate from Scripture at every turn and every bend. That has historically been my, uh, my MO as it, as it is, is. I don't like saying something that I can't immediately show you in Scripture where I found it. So those of you that know me, just trust that I'm in the Word enough that I don't need to show you. But also in your own, do your own diligence and search the scripture. So for sake of time, we're going to be kind of moving through these thoughts and really not digging deep, although we will find ourselves in John 6. But I, I find that believers that lack confidence and assurance of salvation lack joy. They're also those that are most unlikely to be effective in church ministry. That isn't always the case because sometimes people that lack assurance go to substantiate the fact that they're saved by performing works. So some of these statements are not always true in every case. 
And a person that you think might lack assurance is probably not the person that you're thinking of right now. And if you haven't doubted, there may be a time that you yet doubt. The interesting things that I find in the Gospels and also in the epistles is how Jesus deals with the subject of salvation. And I may be getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we have in John's Gospels as well as in, in Matthew, we have Jesus touches on salvation and he's always, it seems like he's kind of moving the target, not off of himself necessarily, but when people thought that they had made it, he kind of questions. There was a time when towards the end of Jesus's ministry where he was saying, I'm going to not always speak in parables, but I'm going to speak plainly and openly that I came from the father and I go to the father. And shortly after this discourse, and I can't remember exactly where it was, his disciples say, oh, you're speaking plainly now. Truly by this, we, we believe that you are the son of God. And Jesus says, do you believe now? You see, he, he recognizes and he tells them, you're going to be tested. It won't be long before you depart from me and I'm going to be left alone. And so he, he challenges them, even in their current faith. And I want to challenge you also, if you've never doubted maybe where you're setting with God in Christ, there may be a time, just as the disciples met with, that your confidence may be shaken. It may be shaken from... Uh, a current event it may be shaking from maybe somebody that you had looked up to in the ministry maybe somebody in your family or maybe pressed by maybe a teacher somebody that is that has asked questions or pushed you in an area that you didn't think or maybe it's just a life event but undoubtedly this can be an area that could be an area that would test you so I think that it's interesting we may not get to everything that I want to speak on this morning, but I want to kind of postulate this in terms of our position, rather. Where are we when we deal with assurance of salvation? What do I mean? What well, means to be assured that you're saved? It means to look at your life and recognize if your life were to leave your body now, your heart would stop beating, and you'd be pronounced dead and cold and lifeless. And if any of you have been around a lifeless corpse, it's very apparent what is life, where life is and where death is. Life is a very strange thing. We're used to being around people that are alive, but when you're around a person that you've known that has been alive and is now dead, it's a very strange feeling. There's nothing you can do to make them breathe again, speak again. It's a very strange, strange feeling indeed. When that life leaves your body, the question I'd have for you is, where will you be? Have you done enough? Have you prayed enough? Do you have faith enough? Is God merciful enough? The questions that you might ask, maybe in that moment, maybe you're asking them now, I think are important to recognize how you answer that for yourself may very well put you in this message. There are two passages of scripture. You don't need to turn there. I did just because I tend to get things wrong sometimes when I quote them. But in Romans chapter 10 verse 13. 
For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that true? Are there qualifiers? Do you hear that and think, yes, that's right, whosoever, amen. And that's enough. What about a commonly preached and taught passage, probably the most well-known passage in the scriptures in John 3? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are these actual truths in the scripture? When you hear them, are they indeed true? Or are there a bit of skepticism? Yes, maybe, but. Maybe another way to approach this is, and this may say a lot about how you view assurance of salvation. Did Christ merely make your salvation a possibility? Or did he actually secure your salvation? Those are things that I think are good to ask how you view it, how you see God, how you see yourself. The funny thing about assurance of salvation is sometimes those that lack it don't lack it in the same way. Often you would think that someone that lacked assurance of salvation would have lack theology in understanding maybe who God is. Maybe the strength of God, maybe the, the greatness and the love and the mercifulness and the compassion of God to be able to redeem a sinner. So they rightly see themselves as a sinner in, in juxtaposition to a righteous and an all-knowing and yet loving God. But they, they don't doubt God's ability to save them. They may not even doubt God's ability to save their friends or their grandfather or grandmother, but they may doubt God's ability to save them, particularly. And that's fascinating to me. They can go to a funeral, or they can go to a Sunday dinner, and they can talk about somebody, whether it's their pastor, or their neighbor, or their, even their husband or wife, and say, I am confident that they're saved. They have the fruits of salvation. God has done a work in their life. They themselves might even minister the gospel and yet actually lack confidence that they are indeed secure in Christ and that at the end of their days that they will truly be saved because of something. There's a disconnect. And, and that, there could be all sorts of assurance blockers and we don't really have time to get into them. It could be indwelling sin. It could be that they have grieved the Spirit and they know that and they, they question God's ability to, to redeem them from that. Maybe they have, have felt that they have crossed over and they're living after a carnal mind. Maybe they, they just see them so wretched that they truly don't understand the love of God, even though they preach it and teach it. And I'm going to say two things here, and then we're going to kind of move into Scripture here where it's a little safer territory for me. But by and large, and I think that the Scripture would validate this for me, 
The Christian experience should be one that is filled with joy and peace and assurance that God has saved you. I believe that should be the Christian experience. I think that is what we expect to find. Even those that lack assurance, I think that's what they expect to find in believers. And so when they see people that are confident in Christ and confidently assurance, or confidently assured, they, they, they see value and they see credibility there, even though they lack it themselves. But there is another subset of people that do minister in the church and yet do lack assurance. So what do we do with that? What questions would we ask? Maybe a good question to, to ask would be this. Is it possible to be a Christian, to be saved, and actually lack assurance of salvation? Because I think at the, at the heart of many people that doubt and, and wrestle with this assurance is they see these doubts as a value in which separates them from God. So the reason that they actually have doubts just affirms in their mind even more that they must not be Christ or otherwise they wouldn't have these doubts. So is it possible to be both Christian and doubt your salvation? Now there's a fine line there. Do we have biblical evidence to prove that that is the case? Now experientially we may say no or we may say yes. Those that doubt may say absolutely not. One must be confident they're saved in order to be saved. Otherwise, it's not faith, right? But I have a question this morning. What are we saved by? Faith, right? What is the opposite of faith? What is the opposite of belief? What's the opposite of belief? It's not doubt. It's unbelief. And I think we have to understand that. And, and Satan moves in those areas is when we have doubt, he attacks that and says, see, you're, you're not saved. But see, we're saved by our belief in God. Unbelief is what separates us from God. And, and I'm not saying that if you're doubting today that that's a good place. In fact, that's the point of the message today is to show you in, in a small fashion that doubting is not healthy. It's not a healthy expression in the Christian life. In fact, doubting can lead to apostasy. Because ultimately, if you believe that you're unredeemable and God is unable to redeem you, there's no faith. You have no faith in God, and you have no faith or, or in God's spirit in your life to cleanse you from your sins. Where are you going to go? And, and I like John 6 for that reason. Go ahead and turn there, but I want to make two more statements pertaining to this Question, is it possible to be both saved and lack assurance? And my answer is undoubtedly yes, it is. I said this at men's retreat, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it until I die. One of the, the things that I find very ironic and I question so much, even though I believe it because I see it, and I believe it because I I'm a pastor, and that's what we do, is reinforce truth. But as the Gospels were written, as the Epistles were written, such as Romans and Corinthians especially, and Ephesians, and even Hebrews, and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they're being written to Christians, most all of them, right? 
And yet, Paul or John or Peter or Jesus has to tell them things about themselves. Does, does anyone find that kind of a conundrum? He, he writes to them in, in ways, and I'm saying he, I'm saying the Spirit, on our, and in the Scriptures, telling us about who we are in Christ, but also telling us about ourselves and how we should think, which we often don't. And it's also telling us not only positionally who we are in Christ, but also what our experience should be. And so John writes in the 20th chapter, his intention for writing the Gospel of John. He says, these are written, and he's talking about the signs that Jesus did in the presence. And, and I think also you could, you could categorically say the teachings of Christ, the things that Jesus was about. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. So overreaching in John's gospel, we see the intention for writing this is so that you as hearers, not just first century Christians, would actually believe and can come to faith in Christ, believing that he is actually the Son of God. That's the intention of writing John's gospel. And it's not a whole lot different when we actually get into the first epistle of John. In the fifth chapter, John writes this in the 13th verse. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So it's, it's moved forward from just, I'm writing these things that you might actually have faith in Christ. Now to, he's saying, I'm writing to Christians. I want you to hear that. He says in the 13th verse, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to believers. Now hear me. This validates my question with the answer that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to Christians that, that by the Spirit, John is saying, I know that you are Christians. I know that you believe in the, in the name of the Son of God. I, I get that, but I'm writing these things that you might have confidence that you have eternal life. So my intention for writing this is that you may know that you actually possess life eternal. That's his intentionality in writing this, as he says here. In following that, he says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And I know that I'm, I'm, I'm bunny trailing it, but I, I want those of you to see the, that it doesn't just stay in, in this realm of having assurance. Assurance is practical. Assurance draws us to a God that we can, as he says, confidently ask anything according to his will and he will heareth us. He hears us. Somebody that lacks assurance probably is going to doubt at some point that God even hears them. That they're outside Christ so far or that they have done something so amiss or so separated them from God that they lack that confidence. And he's saying, my intention is that you that know that you're Christ or that you are Christ will actually have confidence in your eternal security. But also that now you can draw near to God. Kind of like he says in, in Hebrews so I would say undoubtedly, yes, it's quite possible to be both saved and lack assurance. In Mark 9, time is moving faster than it should.
I think it's Mark 9. Mark 9 is a familiar story of a man that came to Jesus and he's speaking of his child and he says he oftentimes the spirit casts him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him and he, and he says to Jesus but if thou canst do anything have compassion on us and help us so obviously he believes enough that Jesus has the power to do that he wouldn't have taken his time. He wouldn't even have, have went out. If, if, you have to understand that if someone truly doesn't believe that, that God exists, they're not going to exhibit any confidence in him at all. You just don't. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said unto him with tears, Lord, I believe, I believe, help Thou mine unbelief. And yet he saw his weakness of his faith. And I think sometimes those of us that have grown older in the faith, we see God in a bigger picture. And we see our lacking greater. And we see our need to draw nearer and closer to God. And so sometimes we think that we're deficient in faith. And it's not that we're deficient in faith, that our faith looks small next to such a great God. Our faith in God hasn't changed. Just our experience and our view of God has expanded. I hope that is, is made clear. I want to turn to John chapter 6, and, and I, I want to respect the, the time some. And we could spend a good amount of time in John chapter 6. It's probably one of my, my favorite passages in Scripture in John's Gospel to illustrate somebody with a failing faith. Especially the end. I love it. I love when, when a lot of the I don't love that the disciples departed. Don't hear me wrong on this. But, but I love Jesus' response and Peter's response to Jesus. When after the, many of the disciples walked no more with Jesus, after Jesus had been pushing them and giving them hard sayings concerning himself, concerning Christ... As, as the Messiah, that, that idea, that what he's presenting himself, that, that, you, may, that you eat of my flesh, that you, you drink of my blood, you, you have no part with me. And many of them said, this is a hard saying. Who, who can hear it? And I don't doubt for a minute because we know Peter's uh, proclivities or his weaknesses, especially in eating things that were not clean and unclean, right? We understand his, his struggle in, in, in understanding that. And, and how that had to be overcame. So it is no doubt in my mind that as Peter's hearing this for the first time also with the disciples, that as he's hearing that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, I guarantee you that Peter had a big problem with that. And Jesus knew that. And he turns and he looks. And he says, will you also go away? And Peter answers. He said, where would I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And this is just a personal plea to any of you, young, old, wherever you are, that if you're struggling and you, you're lacking confidence in your ability or God's ability or something that, that is misconstrued, I just pray that you would cling to the words like Peter did and says, I don't know. I don't know a lot of things. I don't even understand many times the things that are being spoken about Christ. But I know that he has the words of eternal life and I pray that you would cling to that. Because just that small shred can, can, can give you life, just like what we saw with Peter. If there's anybody that, that should have failed in the disciples, Peter's just clinging on by a thread so many times, even when he was confident 
he really wasn't as, as, as strong as he thought he was. But really what I wanted us to see, and, and this is going to be more of a closing than an introduction, ironically, but as we look in John 6, and I want you to turn your eyes to like the 25th, 26th verse of John chapter 6. This is following Christ's miracle of feeding the 5,000. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? And Jesus answers them and says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now, I just, I want to interject this because I think sometimes one of the hindrances to people's confidence in God is oftentimes the way that they came to Christ. I'm just going to be honest and blunt. There are people that seek Christ for material and the fleshly reasons, just like these people did. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that, that tendency, that propensity. And, and it's not also to discredit Jesus' ability or his reasoning for healing and feeding. He knows our natural needs and he understands even Jesus' teaching, he says, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So he understands our desires along with our needs. So that, that Christ is not absent from our, our Christian experience and our, our, even our experience in the flesh, so to speak. But if your primary reason to coming for God is to set your natural life aright, you've come on the wrong premise and the wrong foundation. And so since you've come to Christ, if your life is nothing but shattered ruins, there's, it's undoubtedly why you are shaken in your faith. Because you're equating your faith with your fleshly or your natural experience. And so it makes no sense to you when you see somebody that life is in the ruins financially, through health, through relationships, through turbulence in their life that stays strong in Christ and you don't understand that. How can their faith be unshaken? Well, it's because their faith was founded upon Christ, not the things of the flesh. And so Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto, eternal or unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that hath God the Father sealed... Now note this, he says, for him hath God the Father sealed. I love that. And they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? So we have this question that's presented by these, these disciples, these people that are following Christ after the feeding of the 5,000. And he is presenting them with doing some sort of a work. And they say, we want to do that work. We want to work the works of God. And Jesus answered unto them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And I understand the, the tension between this faith and works thing, but I just ask for a minute, you just lay that down. And as we, as we see this, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And, and it frustrates me a little bit when... When I hear people, and I understand the sensitivity, I've had these arguments myself. When people say, what well, faith is not a work. And we'd be here all day trying to, to try to bring that out in Ephesians and, and elsewhere. 
But I have talked to at least two times in my life to someone that says it is hard to believe. I want to believe. It's difficult to have faith. Somebody that has grown up as a Christian, it is probably, in my estimation, one of the hardest works and also one of the easiest. But see, the, the difference and the breakdown is the flesh. Because to fully trust God, to fully believe in God, requires a certain understanding of us. So there's a, a dependence on God means less dependence on ourselves. And these folks here, they're wanting to do something. They're wanting to add. They're wanting to build work after work after work so that they can esteem themselves and so God can esteem them as truly saved and workers of God's works. Now, that's not to discredit those of you that want to do what God values. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is these people were trying to make works mandatory in a way that could, could show them approved by God. They wanted a list or they wanted a value system that they could, that they could perform in order to be elevated to the saved status, in a sense, for enduring to everlasting life. But he says, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. And they said, therefore in him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? Which, what dost thou work? And he says, our fathers did eat manna in the desert that is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gave unto you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of heaven is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And then said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They still don't really get the purpose of the bread that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life that he cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But he said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father of, of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which, he, which hath sent me, that all, of, that all of which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Trust is not a substitute for work, Alexander McLaren says, but it is a foundation of work. The gospel is, first of all, trust, and then you set yourself to do the work of God. This is the entrance into everlasting life, and that's why this is a singular work. It's a work. It's not, it's all of what is accomplished by the Spirit in our life. So the work of God, that we might work the works of God. So we have this, this tension and an understanding belief. While often belief is disassociated with a work, it is very much a work. It is something that is done, that we're called to do. And yet, it is 
absent from us, often it is the work of the Spirit that does it. I want to turn to Isaiah 55 for a minute, and this is where I want to close. Because I, I think at the end of the day, we have to understand that we're seeking not an experience, not a feeling. If we're saved by how we feel, you can go a lot of different places for salvation. And that's one of the, I think, assurance blockers that when someone has come to Christ and they've recognized that emotional appeal to Jesus, whether it's been here in, in church and you've come forward or whether it's been in the quietness of your own home or whether it's been while you're driving down the road and you hear that song and it brings you back to a time. There's always that time. And, it, and I don't want to take that, that away from you necessarily, but if you're always seeking experience, you need to question because you're most likely to in your, waver in your faith if experientially that is the litmus test for salvation. That's not the litmus test for salvation. Isaiah 55 is a very, very familiar passage, but I, I, I want to kind of draw your hearts in here. Because this is in, in just a, a very peculiar and beautiful picture of what Jesus is, is asking us to do when we're, we're eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, but really to feast on him. And, and he is the object of our salvation, not our abilities not focused on what we can do or what we don't do, but focused on who is able to secure us and bring us home to be with God. He says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Ye come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you buy something without price? Maybe that's been preached here, you're familiar with that. How can you come and buy wine and milk without price? And he asked, he says, And wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Stop there. You know, what you find yourself doing in your personal time, in your thoughts, and your minds to satisfy yourself, he's saying it doesn't truly satisfy True satisfaction comes from seeking God. True satisfaction comes from that hunger, that hungering and, 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 and thirsting. But he says, you need to come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so it paints this strange picture how we're, we're bringing something, we're buying, but we're not actually buying. And that's what I really see in John 6 about working the works of God without actually working and I want to see the attachment here in Isaiah 55, and then I want to give you, in my estimation, what, we, what I see in this passage and with a, a short parable, I guess, if you will. But he says, Incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And I love that because an everlasting covenant, a covenant is a promise without end. It's sealed. It's ratified by God himself, and he says, even the sure mercies of David. And I thank God that we see people like King David, who we esteem, but yet we see him fall, and we see him restored, and we see him as a man through the Psalms and through Samuel and, and Kings, and, and we, we recognize that God truly did what he said he would do. He would secure him an everlasting kingdom. And we see him in the seat of promise through Christ. And Christ came just 
as he said he would. So how do we buy wine and milk without money and without price? And this is not a fully, I, I think I use, I use this illustration at home and I realized it has its weaknesses. That's why I don't do them often. But, but I want us to understand that how we view God is important. We must view him both as a God and as a father. As a king and as a father, a heavenly father. And, and I, I view this in, in a kind of a picture where you have a maybe 11 or 12 year old boy, maybe, maybe a three to five year old girl, and their father's a king. In a, in a foreign land, you can let your mind wander. And they, they're seeking their dad and they're saying, you know what, um, we would like to be with you. And he says, come to my banquet hall tomorrow at noon and I'll prepare a lavish feast for you. Become as subjects to my kingdom and I'll receive you. Well, they start talking to each other, the, the girl and the boy, and they like, well, you know what dad's going to expect. When he entertains guests from lands and foreign lands, they bring gifts and they bring gold and they bring things that cost a lot and require a sacrifice. What can we bring that dad would recognize us as subjects in his kingdom? And so the day and the time arises and they come into the hall and they realize how small they are, even though they're playing this imaginary almost like a tea party, they see the banquet hall was furnished just as it would, and even better than even the best guests would receive it. And as they come into the hall, the, the king, who is their father, he receives them. He says, what have you brought for me to his son first? And he said, I'm going to present you with my most treasured possession. And he gives him a carved horse's head that his grandfather had done for him. And he hands it to the king, and he thanks him, and he sits down. And then the little girl, she had a conundrum about this because she had a lot of things that she liked, but she thought she'd bring her cat. She really liked her cat a lot. And so she presents dad, the king, with a cat. And they sit down and they dine in this lavish hall as subjects of the kingdom, esteemed. And their gifts were received. About halfway through the meal, the king their father kind of leans forward out of his repose and says, you do realize I'm going to give your gifts back, but thank you. I know that you love me with all your heart. And that's what I see here in Isaiah 55. Because our, our Heavenly Father sees us so, so broken and without so much sometimes, but he wants our all. He wants the very best gifts that we have, even gifts that he's given us. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to buy, but he wants to give it freely. And when we can start to understand that, that pull where we, we serve a king, but we have a father, and it's been accomplished because he's already received the best gift of all, and that was his son, and he gave him freely. But he gave him so that we might have life and have life more abundantly. And brothers and sisters, it's going to be really hard to have life abundantly when we lack confidence in God to actually secure our salvation. It's going to have, be very difficult to walk a Christian life and have life abundantly when we lack confidence in God to put sin to death in our lives and to forgive us our sins. It's not a right view of God to see Jesus is only being used, and I use that term lightly, at the cross. He's a priest. He's a high priest. And the Spirit is going to bring us 
to God and bring us home. He's made every provision to bring us securely home. And so my prayer to you is, is I, I recognize this doesn't meet all the criteria for a deep theological message, but it's here. And those of you that lack assurance know that it wrecks your life. It wrecks your prayer life. You feel inadequate calling on God because you're like, why would he hear my prayer? I'm telling you, he wants to, and he will hear it. You just cry out to him. What shall we sing?